So, you want to save the planet. In just a matter of months, more than 100 world leaders will gather in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26. There, they will make some of the biggest decisions yet on how to tackle climate change and set out plans that will change the way we all live our lives forever. But that's the big picture. What can we do to help now? I'm Lewis Mickey. And I'm Natalie Crawford Goodwin. And this is So You Want to Save the Planet. The planet and your plate. I'm sure many of our listeners, just like me, love their food. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry to inform you that what we eat can have a serious impact on the planet. I do get that because we are seeing more and more people changing up their diets to be more climate friendly. I mean, have you ever heard of this? Flexitarian has become a lot more widely used in the last few years. And just in case you don't know, that means people who aren't fully vegetarian, but they look to cut down on their meat intake and find, I suppose, a bit of a middle ground. Yeah, I feel as though we hear a lot about why meat, or at least certain types of meat, aren't good for the environment. But just like with the cleaning products that we discussed in episode two, there's some obvious reasons, but some not so widely known impacts. Well, I recently spoke to Pete Smith. He's a professor of soils and global change at the University of Aberdeen. But he's also recently been appointed to a group of international experts who will advise the Scottish government on environmental issues ahead of COP26. That sounds like this guy really knows his stuff then. Absolutely. And he's talked me through all the details of how eating meat can actually speed up global warming. The first thing we can do is we can do agriculture more efficiently by producing the food that we grow with less inputs. So that's less fertiliser, less agrochemicals and such like. We can reduce food waste. Up to 30% of all the food that we grow on the planet is actually ultimately wasted. And in developing countries, that tends to be loss in the field or loss during storage. But in developed countries like ours, it tends to be loss um, at the shop and at the consumer levels, the stuff that we buy and we throw in the bin. So if you think about it, that's 30% of the food that we grow that emit emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from growing it, that we just waste. And the last one, and by far the most controversial, is changing our dietary preferences. We eat nearly twice as much protein as we need, so we could greatly reduce the amount of uh, meat and dairy that we consume without affecting our health. In fact, there would be positive impacts on our health. And because livestock products have a greenhouse gas intensity, so that's the amount of greenhouse gas emissions per unit of product of between 10 to 100 times that are plant-based foods. So that's the three, dietary change, waste reduction and improvements in our agricultural productivity. When we look at those areas, sometimes when we talk about climate change and things people can do to help, people do them and then find out actually in the grand scheme of things, maybe this isn't the biggest problem. I mean, where does food sit in terms of if we were to make a lot of these changes, how big of an impact does that make? It's a biggie, actually. Yeah. So a heavy meat diet actually emits around about 2.3 tonnes of CO2 equivalents per year without, without doing anything else. So without heating your house, without driving, if you did nothing else but eat a meat heavy diet, you're already emitting over what we need to emit to be on target to be net zero by 2050. It makes a big difference. Probably in an individual's everyday life, dietary choices are the biggest impact that you make. Flying, of course, is the other big one. 
obviously there's some people who go the full hog, they maybe go vegetarian or even vegan, but are you seeing a lot of people that are actually going flexitarian and just having days off from meat as well at the moment? Yeah, so I think it's becoming more attractive and more easy to be entirely vegan now. So the sort of products that are available for vegans that are nutritious and tasty, I mean, that's the main thing. We enjoy our food, don't we? So we want it to be tasty. The range of products that are available now is just ballooned compared to only five years ago. But there are a lot of people that I speak to who aren't ready to make that decision. It says, you know, I don't want to give up meat forever, but I am willing to just cut it out once or twice a year or reduce portion sizes because I recognise that it's important for the planet to do so. There are more people in the world that are overnourished than undernourished at the moment. Obesity is a rising problem and the consumption of overprocessed foods and the consumption of excessive meat and dairy is contributing to that. And just on some of these meat alternatives that we have as well, I mean, do we see some of these that maybe actually don't have the extra climate benefits as well? Are there some that maybe actually have other ways that they're contributing negatively to the climate? I mean, if you look at the carbon footprint of a beef burger compared to a vegan burger, there's about a 20-fold difference. So you're talking about one kilogram per kilogram of product for the plant-based one and about 20 for the beef. It's a massive difference. So even if you're using products which are, aren't as environmentally friendly sourced as others, it makes a difference, but it's nowhere near sort of switches the difference between meat and plant-based. On health, it's a different matter because you can also get very highly processed, unhealthy vegan materials, just like you can meat and dairy products. So you have to look because they can be very high in coconut oil and other fats that are particularly good for you. You mentioned how many more products there actually are now than even just five years ago. If we were to go five years into the future or maybe slightly further, do you expect there's going to be even more that start to emerge? I think so. Yeah. So a lot of people, I think being vegan used to be very niche. Being vegetarian even was quite niche, you know, 10 years ago. And maybe you'd go to a pub or a restaurant or something and there'd be one vegetarian option on the menu and no vegan ones. But that's changed. That's really dramatically changed. So the more choice there is and the more people eat those products, the better that will be for consumption in the future. And our podcast is kind of looking at, I suppose, relating all these different climate issues back to the the person themselves and what they can do. But we're also leading up to COP26, which is all about what the government can do. It seems a lot to do with the plate is very individual in terms of your own diet and things like that. What are ways that maybe we could see governments and, and things like that getting involved more so in, in this side of climate change and you know, what things could they do to kind of help i suppose with eu exit you know we're no longer in the common agricultural policy that was the eu's form of subsidizing farmers for producing certain products now we're out of the cap we can rethink the way that we reward farmers and the way that's being thought about north and south of the border is to reward farmers for public services that they provide so it's public money for public goods they call it That could be planting hedgerows, which is good for biodiversity and good for carbon sequestration, planting more plots of woodland up, improving the soil organic carbon that's in the soils. All these things are good for withdrawing carbon from the atmosphere, so they're good for the climate. So we could incentivise those sorts of practices and behaviours. You know, we pay you so much per farm to produce uh, lamb or beef or whatever. You could just pay farmers for the practices that improve the climate. You know, net zero is going to be really tough to hit. And Scotland's got a net zero target by 2045. And that's going to be really tough. So we have to use all the tools in the box to try and get there. And one of them will be to improve the way that we manage land and the way that we farm. So you want to save the planet? 
Right, that's us all clued up on why eating less meat is a good idea. But we still need to get our proteins and vitamins. We all still need to enjoy our food. So what are the alternatives? Well, this is another example of some options being quite obvious, but then some others not so much. Yeah, we all know about like meat replacements like corn. We, we've, I'm sure we've all seen the adverts with Mo Farah on the telly. And I know if I'm not cooking with meat, then I could fill up the meal with, you know, vegetables. You know, my brain's immediately going to like spinach or lentils or something like that. But I can't help but feel like surely there's got to be more variety. So I had a chance to catch up with Hitch Radio Network overnight presenter Meg McHugh. She used to be a vegan, she's now vegetarian, but she would like to go back to being fully vegan. Maybe she is somewhere in the middle, maybe she's one of these flexitarians that we hear so much about. So I had a chance to talk to her about her diet and the reasons for her choices. Basically, a couple of years ago, I kind of looked into veganism a lot and it kind of was on the rise sort of thing. Everyone was talking about it. I have been vegetarian for a long time now. Anyway, my initial reason was for the animals. I thought to myself that vegetarianism was enough. Like I thought that if you don't eat the animals, then that is you doing your part fully. But I actually didn't realise that there's so much more to it and actually any exploitation of animals is really vile and I think it's kind of painted to us that it's done in a humane way when it's it's really not it doesn't take a lot to kind of see videos and stuff like that which is very hard to watch and and things like that I was like I'd like to go a little bit further with this as if I could go vegan and I think as well because the world is changing so much this was like back in like 2018 There were so many more vegan products. Like even now, though, there's so many more. But at the time, it was not too difficult of a transition, apart from things like cheese and fish and stuff like that. So my main reasons was because I considered myself to be an animal lover. And I thought to myself, I don't see how I could call myself an animal lover when it's only specific animals, like dogs and cats, the pets, essentially, that we've decided as humans are worthy of living a life. And because these other animals have been bred for the purpose of our consumption, we decide that that is less worthy. And it just didn't make any sense to me. That is my main reasons. And I still stick by them, even though I'm not fully vegan. I completely appreciate everything that they're doing. What advice then would you give to somebody that was starting on a journey, even just to vegetarianism, as that first step? In terms of what you said there, starting as a vegetarian I would fully recommend that because a lot of the time people go straight into veganism and it's too overwhelming because when you pick it up after say a couple months it's not difficult to spot vegan stuff everywhere but at the start you feel a bit like what am I going to do here and it can be enough to turn some people off like some people cannot fathom the concept of having a meal without meat in it which is funny to me now because I've been vegetarian for so long so I'd say the first things you could do is look for meat substitutes so you get so many like literally thousands now especially in like supermarkets it's not expensive I think people also have the misconception that replacing meat with meat substitutes is an expensive swap but it's not just just swap out things that you would put in to meals and you honestly barely taste any difference if at all like I my boyfriend isn't a vegan or a vegetarian he eats meat 
most nights of the week we cook together so I use these substitutes and he doesn't even notice a difference if you put it into your your sauce mix a lot with loads of different seasoning it honestly you can tell the difference and I think that's the best point of call start small make a few little changes also places like everywhere's doing it now like I can't think of a single even fast food chain that doesn't do a vegetarian option like Greg's is incredible in the moment they do like vegan sausage rolls they do like a vegan sausage cheese and bean melt and it's they taste so good even if you just incorporate one or two days a week some of my friends that are still would never go vegetarian they have still have vegetarian days of the week because they're like oh I feel much more energetic less heavy I usually tend to have meat at the weekends when I'm doing less so it's even people saying that aren't willing to swap over they're even saying like I feel better and healthier when I have less meat in my diet. Do you feel like is it like easier to go vegetarian or vegan in 2021 than it was say five years ago 100 there is endless pages there's endless instagrams people make tiktoks obviously tiktok's really big now very simple meals to make where to find them i follow a page on instagram called accidentally vegan and it's things that you wouldn't even think twice about like sometimes even crisps that say that they're chicken flavored crisps they have no chicken products in them they just have that flavor but they find that for you and you're like oh that's great it's so much easier now there's so much more advice and also it's a lot more accepted as well and I know that that should never be an issue if it's accepted or not like even being a vegetarian I've had so much pushback especially from like my own family but nowadays you see options everywhere and if a restaurant doesn't have that option then it's just like you're really behind the times for a business standpoint for a personal standpoint it's so much easier and there's so much advice out there as well. So, you want to save the planet? And as much as those meat alternatives are great, they are still a wee bit limited. Yeah, this is the part where I hope you have some expert that can come in and tell us there's this really amazing non-meat option to choose from that's going to taste, you know, exactly like a beautiful steak. Well, (laughs) you're in luck because Jenny McDermott spoke to me about all the choices some a little more conventional than others and uh, what we can basically use to replace the meat in our diets. If we continue eating in the way we do, we will hit our carbon budget just through food going forward. So the reductions that we can make, it depends what you're replacing it with, but we can make quite dramatic changes because emissions associated with livestock are significantly greater than many of the plant-based foods that we could eat as alternatives. And I think one of the important things that we need to remember is we're not short of protein in our diets. And actually, if we were to reduce the amount of meat in our diet, we would still have sufficient protein. So I think a lot of the messaging around the sort of concerns about reducing meat consumption being around protein isn't backed up with any evidence. So if we were looking at the sorts of things to replace it with, obviously plant-based foods are some of the obvious things. But There are foods like nuts, for example, while they don't have a big carbon impact, they have a very high water footprint. And the problem now is we're growing these in regions of the world which have water scarcity. So we've got to be careful that as we move to different plant alternatives, we don't end up all en masse eating the same thing. We've got to look at a diversity and there isn't any one single sort of food that's going to be beneficial for everything to change to so we need to sort of compromise on what will be the best things but being mindful of what are some of the other implications some of the obvious things would be to be eating beans pulses vegetables and it isn't a case of going vegan 
you know, these are just some of the things that you could add into a meat dish so that you've got less meat in it and maybe bulked out with something else. And that would add benefits for health as well as the environment by doing making those sorts of switches. We want to try and bring together as much as possible health and environment. It's not always possible to do that. And this is why we look at a collective of a diet rather than individual food. So if we take something like sugar, it has a very low carbon footprint, but we don't want to go out and recommend everybody eats sugar. There's a lot of discussion around sort of lab meats, meat replacements. So the benefit of those are that you don't have to change your meal. You can still have a burger or you can still have sorts of meat. But I think we don't know enough at the moment about if that was scaled up to a population level, what would be the carbon footprint of that? You know, there's a great interest at the moment around insects, but we don't know what scaling that up to a level that everybody could eat it at. What implications does that have for the environment? We don't know. You know, we don't think of things like animal welfare when we think of insects. You know, if we feed them on waste, for example, they can get contaminated. So there's lots of things around this that we can't just jump to. And I just want to quickly go back to the insects. Is what do we know about that right now? And, you know, I suppose the first thing that probably a lot of people think when they hear that is it just doesn't sound appealing. But I suppose it's also people are just used to what is acceptable and, and what's not. Yeah, well, I mean, the insect thing, obviously, a lot of countries do eat insects as part of staple parts of their diet. Obviously, in the UK, we don't. But I think when discussions have started around what do we eat in place of meat, insects sort of was something people started to explore. You see it in usually quite expensive restaurants, so it's a, a novelty. But the reality of it really replacing something like meat I don't think it is sort of realistic. There's there's a lot of talk around it, but we don't know enough about it. There's been small scale studies that have been done. I think to be realistic at the moment, I think it would be quite hard to sell the idea of eating insects. And when we're trying to get people to change what they're doing, it isn't the quickest and fastest route, I think, to go down. So you want to save the planet? Okay, we talked about a few different ideas there, but mm-hmm. I think the one that probably is going to stick out to everyone yeah. insects. is essentially eating insects. Yeah, what? <laughs> exactly. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. So it's going to be a no from you. Yeah, I think so. I don't want to live every day of my life like I'm on, I'm a celebrity, get me out here. I don't think I'd say no to trying it, but I can't imagine I would end up doing it on a kind of regular basis. No. The, the bit about kind of, oh, I suppose like she called it lab meat, which I guess in some ways is similar to some of these meat alternatives because mm-hmm. it is just kind of put together and then has a less environmental impact. I don't know the technicalities of it, to be honest. I can maybe get more behind that, but then I do think, I don't know, insects, it just seems weird to me. But then when I compare it to actually eating meat, I guess, is it all that different? I, I, know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm being very narrow-minded here. It's just not something that I could see myself incorporating into my life and I think you would have to be very very committed in order to do that and I suppose where does that align with the kind of principles of being vegan do you know because you're not supposed to have anything that comes from an animal insects are still they're still creatures they're still animals I don't know I'm very confused by the whole insect thing yeah I don't think it would work for vegans or vegetarians We'll put that one to one side because we're talking about (laughs) our choices here. We can actually go right back the way on the production line. So let's hear from Professor Derek Stewart. So he's going to take us all the way back to where food really starts Mm -hmm. because he works with farmers to make all the work they do more sustainable. Clearly, we've got the problems around livestock and greenhouse gas emissions. But I think the livestock guys are working to make 
the emissions a lot less than that. I mean, people will continue to eat meat for a long time. We just need to make sure we do it more efficiently and we're growing animals within a system that calculates greenhouse gas emissions. So my focus is predominantly the plant-based ones, and there's lots of different ways we can help mitigate against climate change there. The obvious one is actually reduce the amount of meat you eat or increase the amount of plant-based protein you're taking in. Even on the plant basis, when you're growing plants, you have to fertilize them. Interesting ways of doing that without adding fossil fuel-based fertilizers or mineral fertilizers is intercropping. So growing crops that are just growing up to allow to decay, they'll fix nitrogen themselves. And so they're helping that process along the line. We are helping to design in the most in the broadest sense crops that are better at taking up efficient minerals from the soil or better at using water, which means essentially they will need less care. Or you can go to the other extreme of actually, well, we might want to think about for some of these things, do we want to grow them inside? So this controlled environment, agriculture farming, which includes vertical farming, we can grow it in the box. Scotland's a great place to do this because we've got lots of renewable energy. So I think the the, the potential business for primary food production could be quite um it's going to evolve a lot. Let's put it that way. And you use the word evolve there. I mean, over the, the past, I suppose, decade, two decades, how much of this thing's changed and, and how much has sustainability and those sorts of things become more prominent in the thinking of, of how things are done? If I'm brutally honest, having worked with farmers for a long time, these guys know what sustainability is. Sustainability means different things to different people. You need a sustainable business as well. So sustainability in that sense. But I think we need to think about sustainability across the whole piece so people can... Farmers can remain being stewards of the land. I mean, they, they, they want to see the land, like all of us, be better when these guys finish farming and when they start it. So you, you want to leave things better. I think what's come to the fore now, of course, is the whole thing about greenhouse gas measuring emissions, how you get down to that. So that science and how it's translated to on-farm is coming in in more simpler methods now. You can see the potential for new business opportunities while delivering sustainable benefits coming in. And I just want to maybe dig a little bit deeper into some of the things you mentioned before. You know, you talked about growing things indoor or you talked about rewilding and, and things like that. Just tell me a little bit more detail about those. Well, we, we work a lot with vertical farm systems. So in site on Dundee, we have two. We have Intelligent Growth Solutions. I think they just won engineering firm of the year, actually, yesterday. And we've got another smaller one called Liberty Produce. And they're different types of vertical farm companies. But the whole thing is about controlling the environment crops grow in. We know we have climate change outside and climate changes and you get climate extremes like the huge frost we had in April. I think even yesterday it started off here as a terrible day and then became beautiful at the end. So the temperature lift was enormous. We all know what Scottish summers are like. You always have to have your cagoule and then you'll be down to your T-shirt or taps off, as they say, and then back to rain again. So just imagine how the plants feel about that. They, they can't adapt to that. So taking that whole environment problem out of the agenda and you control it, you can give the plant the ideal scenario. And what we've seen working with partners in that area is we can get plants growing much faster. And because you control the environment, you're growing 24-7, 365. So as a productive unit, it's massively useful. Now, if you were to plug that growth environment into the mains to grow under standard fossil fuel energy, it doesn't add up. But if you start to use renewable energy in that system, it becomes very, very efficient, sustainable and lucrative at the same time. Now, what you can do with that is grow crops fully for production as primary crops for production. So the herbs type of thing, you can grow that. But you can grow plantlets like strawberry plantlets that can then go out to existing agriculture. What's the, the public's role in making sure that they can support farmers or businesses that are looking to take these steps? Is it just about seeking out the right products that are doing that? 
Well, there's different grades. I mean, vertical farming is a broad church or controlled environment farming is a broad church. A lot of people will have a greenhouse in their garden. That's controlled environment farming. So it doesn't have to be all whiz-bang, bright lights type stuff. It's it's horses for courses. But if you want to do it on a, on a, a scale where you're going to make an impact, so you're a business of it, you have to get a bit more smarter and adept at that. And we're here to talk to farmers. We fully engage globally with that whole industry as well and can help be the matchmaker in that system if, if Scottish farming systems want to get into that. I mean, Scottish farming has been really good at getting wind turbines up. So they've got their own farm energy. So the interesting thing is actually they can then use that energy to directly power that system rather than putting it into the grid and then paying for it to come back in. So I'm not saying it's free energy, but once the turbine's paid for itself, you kind of got free energy that you can use and then the plants growing from that turbine kind of become a green battery. You're storing that energy as something that you can sell on and people can eat or use for chemicals or, or whatever, or actually growing the next generation of cancer drugs. It can be as wild as you want to be. So, you want to save the planet? Before we go, I want to look at something a little bit different because we've talked about wasting water both in this episode and in the cleaning episode. Yeah, and that is such an easy thing to overlook because we are very fortunate to live somewhere where we just turn on the tap and have infinite, lovely, clean, beautiful Scottish drinking water. But wasting all of this water isn't good for the planet at all. And that's why I want to take you back to a few months ago when I visited the eco-village in Finshorn near Inverness. We're going to revisit them a few times throughout this podcast because they've made some interesting and some very different ways to be more climate friendly. They do, one of which is their living machine, which is essentially a way of taking wastewater and repurposing it. Now, this goes through various stages, which founder of Biomatrix, Michael Shaw, will be able to describe for us. The living machine was actually built in 1995, and it's never been out of compliance. It was the first of its design in Europe. And initially, SEPA, you know, Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, would test it every week, and then it was every month, and now it's every three months because it's a very good performing machine. We haven't particularly adjusted it since it was built, except, of course, we've replaced parts that have come to the end of their lives, particularly pumps and aerators and that type of thing. It's a nature-based system or nature-based solution, NBS sometimes is called. In other words, the whole idea is to engineer things that nature is the toolbox. There are nine tanks in the greenhouse, so it goes through various stages, and we don't manage that. And the bacteria sort of sort themselves out. The ones that like the heavy-duty concentration of pollutants at the beginning will be the ones that will select for that particular first set of tanks. And as we go up the living machine, it gets more and more later in an evolutionary biology sense. These will be later and later slots of bacteria. So at the very end of the system, there's a fish pond. The fish are great. The current fish have been there for 10 or 12 years and are pretty heavy and much larger than they used to be. There isn't an operator per se. You know, we keep our eye on it and we've got alarms just in case, you know, something fails, but we don't actually have to operate it. It operates itself. We only just visit it every now and again. So we only actually pump out on average once every three years. It does a great job of eating up these uh, sludge. Conventional systems remove sludge every day. We lose sludge every three years. So it saves in cost. And it's also, of course, environmentally 
friendly. And that sludge is sort of pumped out and converted into garden fertilizer. So we've done sort of the reverse of our stomachs in the living machine. When we eat our lettuce for lunch, you know, that's been grown and it's fixed nitrogen from the atmosphere and we eat and it becomes part of our feces and part of our urine. That ammonia then comes into the living machine and is converted back into nitrogen gas. So it completes that cycle. And in the end, we have pretty clean water. We pump that water up to Dunland, which is a development to the north of the living machine, where it is used for irrigation of trees. So that's, again, a little bit of a cycle we've been able to create with the living machine. You've mentioned bits and pieces in there, but why do you do this and and what are the benefits in terms of for the planet, really? Well, nature-based solutions use a substantially less amount of energy in running than you know, what might be called an activated sludge plant or a variation of that, an MMBR, there are all sorts of variations of that. They use a, a lot more energy, but our combination of having a longer retention time in the system and this anaerobic phase at the beginning allows us to use a two kilowatts of energy as opposed to 15 kilowatts of energy. So we definitely use less energy. Secondly, it's less costly because we don't have to deal with the sludge all the time. We only have to pump it out on average every five years. And so they're pretty well self-organizing and self-replicating. I mean, we don't add bacteria. These guys just replicate themselves. The plants replicate themselves. We give them a haircut usually in November because they get very large. And then we just give them a haircut and that makes them more lively for the next spring. And the water is good quality. We've done quite a lot of tests with things like pharmaceuticals, where a living machine, because it is a longer retention time and has this very variation of biology in it, do a very good job at cutting down sort of long chain organics into much shorter chains. And so we've had good results, so much so that we're building a system right now in India where the water will be recharged back into the groundwater, back into the aquifer. It's clean enough to do that. It reaches the standards necessary to do that. And that's important in countries where there are often droughts. So in the south of India, you know, it's very dry for a 10 months of the year, and then you have the monsoon. So this is a a project that Biometrics Water are working now on, and we've applied for a global climate fund, GCF grant, to do that at a much larger and more frequent scale. And if we get that, then that could again be applied in, in many places where you have a lot of sewage, which just runs into the sea or is not really used. But our whole idea is to be able to reuse the water as well as perhaps growing some useful things in the system itself. So, you want to save the planet? Well, Lewis, this has given me lots of food for thought from the, you know, the really creative ways that they're trying to save water at the Eco Village in Finhorn to eating insects. I think there's a lot for, pardon the pun, us and our lovely listeners to go and digest. Absolutely. And I think it's tough choices. Some Mm -hmm. things are easier when it comes to fighting climate change it's really easy for you to go i'm going to use reusable shopping bags yep. now and you know that's quite an easy choice but yep. some people as me included really struggle to disconnect from what we eat and deciding that we're not doing that anymore and that's probably where the kind of flexitarian lifestyle comes in really handy you don't need to get rid of things completely but you can try and find a bit of a middle ground there's a lot to learn there 
Yeah, and I mean, that's exactly what this podcast is all about. It's all about giving our lovely listeners the information so that they can make the right choices for them. Some of these things are going to be much harder than others and something like what you eat is a really personal choice. But as long as you're informed and you're doing the best to make better choices, I think that's all anybody can ever really ask of us. And if you do end up trying insects, please do get in touch and yes, tell us how they were. Yes, we want to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, get us on Twitter and tell us how they were. But um, I won't hold my breath that we're going to have all of our listeners going and trying mealworms or something. Oh, like. well. But you, you never know. know. You never know. Exactly. So, Lewis, tell us what is coming up in episode six of So You Want to Save the Planet. Episode six, Natalie, is about the countryside and Ooh. our green spaces. So it's a little bit all-encompassing. There's a few different things we're going to look at here. Uh, and not just green spaces, we're looking at water as well. For example, we're going to speak to Mike Scotland again because his litter picking group did some amazing things with some of the water in a nearby river and some of the impacts that had have just been amazing. We're looking at reforesting and we're going to speak to our amazing sponsors, Ocean Winds, to find out what they're doing and how they're basically utilising beautiful green space but using it to essentially help save the planet so that we kind of have a little bit of a combination there. If we keep the green space nice, but we utilise some of our natural assets in Scotland to help save the planet. That sounds excellent. The planet and your plate.